everybody. Good morning. I hate to, uh, hate, hate to break up all this good fellowship, but um, the, uh, the clock is ticking. So um, let's, let's begin our study of, of the Word of God first with a moment of prayer. It's an opportunity to confess any sins that we haven't already confessed before we got here. The morning is young. And uh, it's a good reminder, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's take a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather corporately to study your word. We ask that you open our eyes to your truth, a truth that is absolute, a truth that will guide us and color our thoughts for eternity. We ask that you enlighten us and challenge us by what we will learn today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet saves the best for last. Chapters 65 and 66, as we have seen, are a description of the kingdom, first for a thousand years and then into eternity forever. The thousand years is on this planet as we know it, although it will be transformed. And the eternal reign is on a new planet, a new earth, in a new heavens, forever and ever. The emphasis of chapter 66, which is what we begin today, is the, the millennial reign. And before we get there, the prophet speaks of three things. Before we study the thousand-year reign, the prophet Isaiah speaks of three things. Number one who God is, number two, who God shows his favor to, and number three, who God judges. Today we're going to see the first of those two, and we'll see the third one next Sunday. Let's begin with our passage, which is chapter 66, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Verse 1 is about who God is. It describes two of his characteristics, his sovereignty and his transcendence. You see there in verse 1 that God declares heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. This is figurative language to describe the absolute authority of God. It's figurative language describing the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is essential for his kingdom because if he is not sovereign, then his kingdom is a joke. If he is not sovereign, then he is impotent to be able to deliver on the promises of his kingdom. One of the promises that is repeated so frequently in the scripture is the coming kingdom because it's designed to give us hope and those promises are hollow and empty if God is not sovereign, if he doesn't have the authority to bring it about. Because God is sovereign, all authority originates with him, whether that authority is human or that authority is angelic. All authority flows out from, emanates from God. Let me begin with human authority. We see that human authority is sourced in God 
from the trial of Jesus, right? Where Jesus is before the one who sentences him to be scourged, to be, to be tortured, and then to be nailed to a tree, to be executed. In John chapter 19, we see Jesus' words in verse 9. And he, it's Pilate, entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. The only reason why the governor, Pilate, had the authority to have Jesus brutalized and then crucified is because the Father himself gave Pilate the authority. All human authority emanates from God. Now, Pilate, like most people, was blinded by his authority. He thought that he was in charge, but of course God was and is sovereign. All authority in the human realm flows out from God. Whether that's the police officer, or it's the judge, or it's the parent, or it's the boss, or it's the governor, or it's the president, or it's a prime minister of some other country. All authority, human authority comes from God, and all angelic authority also flows from God. The head of the fallen angels, Satan himself, is a picture of this. In Ezekiel 28, verse 14, we get this description about Satan. In verse 14, God said to Satan, You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. God placed Satan in the position of complete authority in eternity past, other than God himself. This was God's plan for the ages. He, out from him, flowed authority to create and then to anoint the cherub, Satan the anointed cherub who covered. And it was always his plan that God would come as a man and the Father would anoint a human, Jesus, to defeat that angel who would fall. And it was always God's plan since eternity past that your identity be linked to that human Messiah. Then we keep reading in verse 14. God continues in his statement to the devil, to Satan, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. And from the day you were created, created by God, until unrighteousness was found in you. The devil, the anointed cherub, beautiful, powerful, brilliant. And he's created sinless, blameless. But when unrighteousness is found in him, now everything is infected in him. And so he has authority still, but not the same authority. He loses authority. Is, he, is the devil still the most deceptive and the ruler of the world? Of course. Is he brilliant? Is he powerful? Is he much more Powerful than us? Absolutely. Remember in Jude? Michael, the, the archangel Michael, doesn't even attack the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, the archangel, relies on the Lord because of the great authority that the devil still has. Not forever, 
Revelation 20, he will be first thrown into the pit for a thousand years, and then he will be cast into the lake of fire. But what I want you to see here in this text, in Ezekiel 28, is the link between blamelessness and authority, anointed cherub who covers blameless, created by God, and then when he sinned, when unrighteousness was found in him, now he's out of his position of authority. Still powerful, still brilliant, still a lot of authority, but he's no longer, he's fallen. He's no longer the anointed cherub who covers. And instead, he's the one who has been assigned a destiny of torments forever in the lake of fire. That conviction has been issued, but the judgment is delayed so that God may bring many sons to glory, to use the language of the book of Hebrews. Although Satan rebelled against God, his authority comes from God. And same thing for the third of the angels that Satan took with him when, they, when he rebelled. Revelation 12 has that language about when his tail, the, the tail of the dragon, sweeped, that it swept a third of the angels with him. That's how we know that, that a third of the angels are fallen angels along with the devil. In Isaiah 66, verse 1, God says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. In other words, I'm sovereign. I am absolutely sovereign. Today, these words of God are mocked by those who rebel against Him, whether that's the, the devil, whether that's a third of the angels, whether that's humanity. The words of God, this figurative language that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, are mocked by the rebels. And that's because... Those who reject God, those who reject His authority, are blinded by their pride. They think their pride is, is, well, their pride consumes them. And so they think that their authority is supreme and they think that their authority is endless. Let me say that again. The one who rejects God's authority thinks that his or her authority has no limit, is endless. The rebel never thinks, hey, there's going to, come a time of reckoning. Why does the devil still fight? Why doesn't he concede? Because he thinks he's going to win. This is what pride does. Pride is incredibly deceptive. He thinks he will make himself like the Most High, Isaiah 14. He still thinks that. And this is why he continues to fight. He will fight until the very end. Because pride blinds. Pride makes the rebel think that his authority is endless. But history is marching to the day when God will take everyone else's authority and retract it. He will pull it back. He will remove the delegation of authority that he has given. He has delegated authority to angels. He has delegated authority because all authority emanates from him. He's delegated to angels. He's delegated to humans. And a day is coming. History is marching towards the day when God will take that authority and snatch it back for Himself. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 where we will see this. 1 Corinthians 15. There we see at the end of the millennium, at the completion of the millennium, God calling back His authority back to Himself. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. 
Here Paul says this. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to, God, to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Who's the he? The he's Christ. The kingdom here is the millennium. It's the thousand year reign which will end with one final revolt. Right? The Gog and Magog revolution of, of Revelation 20 verse 8. There Christ will quash that revolt and then Christ will abolish all authority other than his own. He will first have the devil cast into the lake of fire and then he will judge human beings and cast those, he will judge unbelievers and cast them into the lake of fire. In the book of Revelation, it doesn't talk about, in Revelation 20, it doesn't talk about Christ at at the great white throne judging Satan. You don't find that in Revelation 20, in the end times, judging Satan. The judgment's already been issued. The judgment was issued in eternity past. It just hasn't been executed yet. The judgment for unbelievers isn't issued yet. Excuse me, that will be issued at the end of Revelation 20 and then executed in the lake of fire, which is the destiny of the devil, which which is... prepared for the devil and those who follow him. The point here that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15 is that in the, at the end of the millennium, at the end of the kingdom, when you see the kingdom in the text, Old Testament, New Testament, pictures of the kingdom, you have to make a distinction. Is it talking about the thousand-year reign or is it talking about the eternal aspect of the kingdom? Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the thousand-year reign. At the end of the thousand-year reign, then Christ will remove everybody else's authority. Angelic authority and human authority. Keep reading in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Who are the hymns and who are the he's? Right? When you go through the text and you identify pronouns, especially when it's talking about God, and you can tell because your translators have capitalized it in the Greek, you don't have cap, it's not put in capitalization. And so your translator. Translators have capitalized pronouns so that we know it's not just a regular Joe. A he or a him that has a capital H is always God. The question is, is it God the Son or God the Father? So let's read through the text again and identify who the pronouns are, who the his is, who the hymns, and who the he's are. Verse, 20, verse 25, for he, Christ, must reign until he, Christ, has put all his, Christ's, Enemies under his feet, Christ's feet. So all the pronouns in verse 25 are Christ. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he, Christ, has put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ's feet. But when he, who's that he? When he says all things are in subjection, who's that he? That's the Father. 
when the Father <clears throat> excuse me, says all things are, are put in subjection, it is that, evident that He, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. The Him there is Christ. We're talking about authority. This passage is about authority because God has absolute authority. And God, the Father, is the reference here in this sentence, in this part of verse 27, because the Father accepts Himself. He excludes Himself from the statement that the Son will put all things under the Son's feet, that Jesus will subject everything to Jesus' feet. Keep reading. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him. The One there is the Father. The Son will be subjected to the Father who subjected all things to the Son so that God, the Father, may be all in all. What this is saying is that God the Son Himself submits to the Father. Everyone is going to submit to the Father. Even the Son, even His equal, will submit to Him. This is what history is marching towards. This is the eternal subordination of the Son. God the Son has always submitted to the Father, not because He is inferior, not because He is less than the Father, but because He is humble. This is what we are taught by God, humility. This is why James says that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Christ doesn't tell us, He's not like some of those leaders, hey, do this, and the leader doesn't know what that looks like. The leader's never done it. No, Christ says, do this, which is to say, follow me. I subject myself to my equal. I submit to my equal. Total humility. And so Christ sets the pattern for our humility. Before the morning is over, we will see the importance of humility. The point of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28, is that a day is coming where God will display His authority and He will remove everyone else's authority. It's a good reminder for us. Your authority will be gone. He will remove it. When you are gone, your authority is finished. And my authority is finished. When I'm gone, we're here today. And we're gone tomorrow. The lesson is for us to be humble. This is what we're seeing in the text. The second divine attribute that is, de that is described in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, is transcendence. Sovereignty and transcendence are the two divine attributes that we're seeing in the first verse of the last chapter of Isaiah. Look at the language there in verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? The house and place that God is referring to is the temple in Jerusalem where He resided he lived in the Holy of Holies among His people. That's where the Shekinah dwelt, right? Over the Ark of the Covenant, 
Ark of the Covenant, the top of the Ark of the Covenant is the golden mercy seat, and above that are the two cherubs, and the Shekinah dwelt between the cherubs. The Shekinah means in the Hebrew that which dwells. The Holy of Holies was God's throne room on earth, and the Ark represented God's throne on earth. Psalm 99, verse 1. Yahweh reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The psalmist is talking about the Shekinah, God dwelling above the cherubim on the ark of the covenant among his people in the Holy of Holies, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Hebrews 9, 24 reveals that the Holy of Holies was a copy, an image, a copy of the throne room in heaven. That's why you couldn't just stroll into the Holy of Holies. If you did, you were dead. Because you don't approach God on your terms. The high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And tradition was that they would tie a rope to him just in case he died because of disrespect of God. So they wouldn't go in and they'd just pull him out. Because the Holy of Holies was a copy of of the throne room of God. This is the significance of the veil being split in Matthew 27, 20, 27, 51, when it was supernaturally split when Christ died. Now we have access to the throne room of God. We have access to God's eternal throne room because the veil's been split through the work of Christ, God in the flesh. The throne room of God, a replica was it was the Holy of Holies in the temple. Christ dies. The minute he dies, the veil is supernaturally split in half so that we have access to the throne room of God. We don't go to the temple. The temple's not there anymore. Hadn't been there for almost 2,000 years. We go to the throne room of God in the heavens through our high priest, not through some priest that you go to in some church. Really what we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, is God asking a rhetorical question. Was the temple adequate for me? God asked. And the answer, of course, was no. And Solomon knew it when he built the temple. 1 Kings eight twenty-seven. Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built... Of course, the temple was inadequate to house God. But God condescended. God, although He is transcendent, came down and dwelt with Israel. He didn't lose His omnipresence. He just had His special presence among the Israelites. That's the Shekinah. The temple was inadequate for God because God is transcendent. His transcendence means two things. It means that he is not limited by the universe. He is not limited by the time-space continuum that we are limited by. He's independent of time and space. He, he created time and space. The physical universe cannot contain him. This is the opposite of pantheism. You know, pantheism is God is in the paper and God is in the leather and God is in the wood, and God is in my jacket, and God is in the trees, 
And God is the rocks. And God is the giraffe. God is my shoes. God's, God is everything. That's pantheism, which is the basis for many of the Eastern religions like Hinduism and Confucianism, where they're confused, and Buddhism. It's the basis for many of those Eastern religions. That's not the transcendence of God. The transcendent God isn't the giraffe or the mountain. The transcendence of God means that He is not limited by time or space or by the universe. Jesus declared God's transcendence when He was talking with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember, she thought that worship of God had to be done at that mountain, at Mount Gerizim in the, the area of Samaria. In John chapter 4, verse 21, which we studied not that long ago, at the 1045, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where she thought worship, where the Samaritans thought worship was supposed to be, nor in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Will you worship the Father? An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit. Because God is spirit, He transcends the mountains. Because God is spirit, He is not limited to some particular part of His creation. He wasn't limited to Jerusalem. He wasn't limited to Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim. Transcendence means that God is not limited by the universe, but it also means something else. It means that He is distinct from His creation. In other words, He's over it. He's superior to it. He's above it. The psalmist says this in Psalm 113. Yahweh is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth, Transcendence means that God is utterly other. He is other than anything that we know, anything that we can see or touch and feel. He is other, distinct from His creation. And so you see how transcendence is related to His sovereignty because His otherness is part of His authority. And His sovereignty and transcendence, His otherness means that He is Creator. That's part of, all these characteristics are distinct, and yet they're related. What happens in the text here in verse 66 is that we get a shift to what God alone can do, create. The one who is sovereign, the one who is distinct, which is to say He is transcendent, He alone creates. Look at that in verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. He uses the phrase these things twice. What are these things? You might know. It's creation, right? And we know that from the context. Because verse 1 says heaven and earth. This is what's, what's called a merism. It's a figure of speech that's frequently used in Hebrew poetry. Amerism is where you refer to opposites to describe the whole. You refer to things that are on both ends of the spectrum. 
to describe those things and everything between them. And so David uses merisms in Psalm 139, verse 2, where he says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, those are two opposites, right? Getting up or sitting down. And then he goes on to say, in the rest of verse 2, you understand, David is, is speaking to the Lord, you understand my thought from afar, you scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Again, we have two more opposites. When I go far away, when I lie down, in other words, I, I stay in one spot, I stay at home. David uses opposites to describe the whole, how God knows everything about him, how God knows what he thinks, how God knows what he does. Same thing for us as well. Solomon, like his father, uses merisms. He uses them in his eloquent poem that many of us have heard before from Ecclesiastes 3. There is an appointed time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3.1. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. These are opposites that Solomon is using. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There Solomon in this rhythmic poem, this great poetry, is using opposites to describe the whole. What's the whole that he's describing? What's the concept that he's describing in that great poetry? He's describing that God is the absolute authority in everything, including in human events. And in his authority, he establishes the appropriateness of dancing and the appropriateness of not dancing. He establishes the appropriateness of weeping and the appropriateness of not weeping. God is the absolute authority. That's what, that's this merism that Solomon is using and his authority extends even to the various times of our lives. This, these are the opposites that Solomon uses to describe the whole that God is in absolute authority over humanity. In verse 2, God is using the opposites of heaven and earth as a merism to describe all of creation. Just like in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the same merism. God is declaring that He created everything. Everything that has come into existence, everything that has been created, to use the language of John 1-3, has been created by God. We have a tendency to forget this, especially in our postmodern world where truth is flexible, where truth is relative, where might makes right. I mean, the reason why universities kick out professors who have the audacity to, to challenge Darwinism 
The reason they kick them out is because they're using their authority to establish what is true. There is no truth in a postmodern world. Really, we're, we're more than a postmodern culture. We're an, we, we've come to be, we, at first we were a Christian culture, then it was modern, then it's postmodern, and now it's just anti-Christian. But in, in the current climate, the current culture, truth is not really truth. It's flexible. That's why people use the phrase, your truth, because there's no independent standard of truth. There's no absolute standard of truth, which makes perfect sense because we've rejected the one who is truth. And so there's no transcendent, objective truth. The one who enforces truth is the one who has the maximum amount of power. That's where critical theory comes in. Power based on racial issues or, <clears throat> excuse me, power based on, you know, there's, there's critical race theory, there's queer theory, there's feminist theory, all based on redistribution of power because power establishes truth in a postmodern culture. It doesn't really create truth in the way we would think of truth because you should think of truth as absolute independent truth. It creates truth for a postmodern, power creates truth for a postmodern culture because it gives the ability to enforce your view of reality. And that's why the culture, the, the, the movement that we have, the anti-God movement, is always craving more and more power to establish their perception of truth. Your truth, my truth, whatever truth. It's easy to forget that God is the creator in a culture that makes truth relative and flexible. But God reminds us that He alone is creator because that reveals His sovereignty. When we look at creation, we see the authority of God. We see the otherness of God. Look how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 8. <clears throat> o Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established your strength. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And then the psalmist, in this case it's David, ends the psalm the same way he began it. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The reason why the culture attacks God being the creator is because the culture does not want to submit to the sovereignty of God. And if we can remove God as the creator, then we can make ourselves comfortable in our sin. We can assuage the mental disconnect, the mental absurdity that we engage in when we say that we are monkeys, that our great-great-great-great-grandfather to the whatever power was a monkey that flung his excrement against my, uh, my great-great-great-great-great-grand-uncle. Right? You see, you see the mental disconnect when we view ourselves with, when, 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 the, when the pagan world views itself with pride and yet it, at the same time, it says it's an animal. There's a mental disconnect. There's a mental absurdity that goes on in the atheist's mind. And so we need something, the atheist needs something to assuage that 
psychosis. And the way you make yourself comfortable is you say, there is no God. Creation, you have to explain away creation somehow. And that's why they attach themselves to Darwinism. Creation communicates and reveals the sovereignty of God. That's what, that's what we're seeing here in verse 2. I created those things, it says in verse 2. Right? Creation reveals the sovereignty of God, the transcendence, the otherness, the distinction of God from his creation. And so the one who doesn't want to submit to the sovereignty and the transcendence of God has to come up with some other explanation, no matter how absurd it is, for creation to make himself or herself comfortable with the disconnect and comfortable with their disbelief. You've got to trust in your disbelief. The atheist has to have faith. Make no mistake. The atheist is a very, very religious person. Very religious. Full of faith. It's just he's got more faith than I do. Because he believes and trusts in chance. As opposed to the God who is. Everything's a product of chance. That is the mental absurdity that the one who refuses to submit to the sovereignty of God and the transcendence of God must accept in order to make himself comfortable with his rejection of God. But out of all his creation, out of all of God's creation, there is but one that God showers his favor on. There is but one that is most valuable to him. Look at the rest of verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God doesn't look to heaven and God doesn't look to earth to show his loving favor. He looks to the one who exhibits three things. The one who is humble, who is contrite of spirit, and who trembles at his word. God shows favor to the humble. Humility is often thought of as being the opposite of pride or arrogance. And that's true. It's more than that. It's true that humility is not thinking higher of yourself than you should. You know, the guy who comes in and says, I'm so amazing. That guy's prideful. I want you to know how amazing and awesome I am. Right? You say, okay, well, you're not humble. That one's obvious. But humility is also not thinking less of yourself. Right? Someone, let's say, is a great engineer. I mean, excellent engineer. And he comes in, all oh, shucks. I'm just a terrible engineer. Because he wants you to think he's so humble. Humility is not thinking more of yourself than you should. And also it's not thinking less of yourself than you should. It's just thinking of yourself less often. It's putting yourself second it's putting yourself behind the interests of others. And of course, like all the other aspects of our spiritual life, God the Son sets the standard for that. In Philippians 2, we see this great description of where God the Son submits Himself to the Father by becoming a man, suffering under Pilate, suffering under the Jewish authorities, bearing the sins of the world, serving in fact humility. God serves you. Because God is humble. He sets the standard for us. God the Son is who I'm talking about. God rewards the humble. 
Psalm 25, verse 9. He leads the humble in justice, and He teaches the humble His way. James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Matthew 23.12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The second virtue that God looks for, for the one who He showers His favor on, is being contrite of spirit. This is the one who knows that his sin has earned him enmity with God. This is the one who knows that his sin makes him worthy of God's wrath. The psalmist says in Psalm fifty-one seventeen, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Who wrote that? Anybody know? David. You know when he wrote it? After Bathsheba. After he murdered her husband. After he committed adultery. And, you know, we might even be being a little charitable when we call it adultery. Because when the king says, come have relations with me. That's pretty close to rape. Let's just call it adultery. After David commits adultery, and he wants to hide it because she's pregnant, and so he sends her husband, he's a Hittite after all. Uriah the Hittite, he's not one of us. Have him, so David tells his general, put her husband in the front line so he'll die. And then then maybe I will have concealed, we can conceal. People will think that the baby in Bathsheba's womb is from her husband. But then God sends the prophet Nathan. And remember, Nathan confronts David with this parable. It was a parable about a sheep, a little baby sheep, cute, tender sheep, that this man had. And the man nursed the sheep, and the man kept the sheep close to to him. And then someone came in and slaughtered the sheep and ate it. And David said, we will kill that man. And Nathan says, you are the man. And David got it. Because he took the woman of Uriah the Hittite. A woman that, that, that Uriah the Hittite cherished like a little baby lamb. He cherished her. And David seized her from him. This is the context for Psalm 51, when David recognizes his great, grave, serious sin before God and he confesses it to God. Is he excused from the sin? No. Does he avoid the consequences of the sin? No. The rest of his life is full of punishment. Right? One of his sons, Absalom, is haunting him to kill him. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry. David doesn't get scot-free, doesn't get off scot-free. God takes his belt and whips him. And yet David is described as one after the Lord's own heart. Is he excused from his sin? No. Does God forgive him? Yes. The consequences are still grave and serious for David. And yet David comes to God in contrition. And David says these powerful words that a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise Jeremiah 44.10 But they they have not become contrite even to this day. 
nor have they feared, nor walked in my law or, or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers. God is speaking there to the southern kingdom, to Judah, before the Babylonians, before you will bring the Babylonians to discipline them. Contrite of spirit means acknowledging your helplessness before God because of your sin. You see, in our pride, we don't think that we're helpless. I'm an American. I ain't helpless. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not dissing my country. I love my country. I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful. Contrition is what God demands. And the one who is humble and the one who is contrite of heart, God showers His blessing on. He showers His blessing on that one. Contrite of spirit means acknowledging your helplessness before God because of your sin. The unbeliever does it in order to be saved. The unbeliever acknowledges his helplessness. That's what salvation is. That's what faith in Christ is. I trust you, Christ, to solve my sin problem. I am helpless to fix it. The unbeliever is required to have contrition of spirit. That's what faith is in Christ. And the believer is required to have contrition of spirit. That's, what sanct- that's how we get back to sanctification. That's what happened with David. David is a believer when he commits those sins. Some people say, look, a believer can't commit that sort of sin. Hogwash. Hogwash. Any sin an unbeliever can commit, a believer can commit. David is the perfect example. God also shows favor to the one who trembles at his word. This is the idea of quivering at the instruction of God. Quivering at the word of God. We as Christians don't speak this way anymore. We don't think this way anymore. We used to. The men who founded this country did because they feared God. But we don't fear him anymore. We think he's our buddy. We think he's our pal, which is a big mistake. Psalm Psalm 119, verse 119 reads like this. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. The psalmist here is speaking of the judgment in the end times. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, the psalmist says. And I am afraid of your judgments. How does flesh tremble? It quivers. It quivers. The psalmist says, I quiver, I tremble before you. We should ask ourselves if we quiver at the instruction of God. If we quiver at the word of God, do we fear God? Do we approach him in wonder and awe? Fearing God is reverential awe. Fearing the Lord makes you love his word. Fearing the Lord makes you go to the place of blessing. Because the place of blessing is fearing the Lord. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 112. Hallelujah. That's how it begins. Hallelujah. When you think of the word hallelujah, do not think of those charlatans. Please. Don't think of the the fakers on TV who abuse the word hallelujah. Don't think of them. Think of the scripture. Hallelujah is the Hebrew word halal, which means to praise. Hallelujah means, is, is the conjugation of that verb in a, in a y'all version. Y'all praise is hallelujah. And then yah is short for Yahweh. Hallelujah. It's a beautiful word. Erase from your brain those fakers on TV. 
When you see praise Yahweh in the scripture, it should make you warm inside. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 112. He begins with, Hallelujah! How blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in His commandments. What we've seen today is that God is sovereign, which is to say He has absolute authority. One day He will show it. He already has it. He just hasn't displayed it. The way He will display it is He will retract all of our authority from us. He'll call it back. And He'll call back all authority of any angels. All the angels. All the humans. He will call it back to Himself. And then the Son will give that authority to the Father for the Father's forever glory. We've seen today that God is sovereign and God is transcendent. He is beyond time and space, utterly distinct from His creation. And out of all of His creation, there is but one that He showers His love on. There is but one that He gives His favor to. And that is the one who is humble, the one who is contrite of spirit, and who trembles at his word. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We ask that you help us fear you. We ask that you help us not take you casually. We ask that you help us approach you in reverential awe, that we may bask in the place of blessing. Help us be the one who is humble, contrite of spirit, and help us tremble at your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.